0: Hi, this is Ben Lola. Back to the Bible, Canada. How should Christians respond when they're wronged by others? Today, as we continue our series, "The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached," Dr. Neufeld helps us answer this very question. Let's turn now to Matthew chapter five, verses thirty-eight to forty-two, with this message called "Revenge Versus Justice." It
1: is oh so easy to curse the darkness. There are many times that things are not as they should be, so many injustices that are not addressed, too many evil people get away with too many things, and far too many people are complacent about righteousness. The longer we live, the more we become aware of disappointments and hurts and wrongs, and some people become bitter, and some live lives in which they are quickly and easily offended. You know, I have a memory that takes me back a few years. I was uh, contacted by a man who told me that a brother in Christ had sinned against him. He had confronted him, but the man refused to repent. In accordance with Matthew 18, would I be willing to come and be a witness to what was said? Well, I guess I agreed, although I remember feeling uncomfortable. I watched as the two men sat down. The so-called offended brother reached into a bag and pulled out a large three-ring binder. You know, I wondered what that could possibly be, and I was soon to find out. He had what looked to me to be over 100 pages of notes, along with dates in which the other man had said things, done things, and insinuated things. As the man being charged protests that some of the things that were being said were not true, the offended brother had a detailed system of cross-referencing and would tell at what date, even at a half a year ago, two years ago, in which the other man had said the opposite. At first, I must say, I didn't know what to make of what I was witnessing. Clearly, there were wrongs done to the offended brother. Things had been said, and the one had lied to hide his sin. But what was I to make of this prosecutorial style, this aggressive and merciless manner in which the offended brother was determined to destroy the other and now get him back? He was letting the other know, if you try and harm me, I'm going to destroy you. I have the discipline to write everything down, and I'll never forget anything. And so I did something that I had not been asked to do. I stopped being a witness, and I called an end to the meeting. I informed the offended brother that love keeps no record of wrongs, and as far as I was concerned, if the first man was willing to apologize from the heart, that should end it, and we should consign the notebook to the shredder. And to my amazement, the offended brother took out a piece of paper and wrote down what I said and dated it and placed it in a file. In an instant, I knew that I now was also under investigation. I know, I know, that's extreme. But as I've reflected on that event years later, I've come to a conclusion. I think there is a bit of that in all of us. Most of us are aware of the old saying, revenge is a dish best served cold. It means that revenge has its greatest effect not fresh after the wrong is done. Rather, revenge requires planning and enough time so that the the victim has let down his or her guard and doesn't see it coming. And it's going to surprise them in the same way that their initial action surprised you. Let's see what Jesus has to say about all of this. I'm reading Matthew 5:38 to 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, before looking at the details, here's the problem with what has been said. Would you tell someone who is being abused and beaten by their spouse to just turn the other cheek? Well, I wouldn't. I would encourage them to call the police, and I would try to get them out of that abusive situation. But when Jesus said, do not resist the evil person, what did he mean? Does that apply to criminals? Some will say that when we're personally attacked by someone who is evil, we should just let them have their way. But should we? And can anyone really live that way? Technically, if you lock your doors at night, you are resisting the evil person. Who among us would say, if someone breaks into my house and rapes my wife, my response would be, let him have my daughter as well? Well, of course not. That would be insanely cruel beyond belief. Who doesn't call the police when they see evil coming? And that's resistance. It was the English philosopher Edmund Burke who said, all it takes for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. And we know that's true. Years ago, I did a ride-along with a police force, and I was shocked to find out how much violence and evil there is in our communities, and I've never stopped giving thanks for those who actively restrain evil. In fact, is this not what the Bible teaches? You know, Romans chapter 13, verse 3 teaches that God has appointed the authorities to be a terror to those who do evil. And in the very next verse, the Bible says that's why the authorities have been given the power of the sword deadly force over evildoers. And so we're left trying to understand Jesus' words as more than sentimentality. Practically, how are we to do this thing? Did Jesus actually mean that when evil men do evil, that the righteous should not resist them at all, but simply let them have their way? Most of us would think that to be a recipe for disaster. See, in order to understand Jesus, we must remember That when we began this study, we said that Matthew 5, 17 was an essential key to interpreting the Sermon on the Mount. Let me read it again. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. Jesus, we said, is not canceling out the law or the Old Testament. And so as we've seen, that all the statements that begin with the phrase, you have heard that it was said, and then quotes something and then says, but I say unto you that whenever Jesus says that, He's not contradicting the Old Testament. Rather, he's taking issue with how the Pharisees were interpreting the Old Testament. So since Jesus said he did not come to abolish the law, let's take Jesus at his word. If he said he had not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it, he would be contradicting himself. If a few sentences later he were abolishing the law. Let's assume that Jesus is not contradicting himself. Well, what then do we make of verses 38 and 39? You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, is not an eye for an eye an Old Testament law? Well, yes, it is. It's found in Leviticus twenty-four seventeen to 21. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, as is done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given, a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. Now, as strange and even as brutal as that law sounds to our ears today, let's see if we can understand it in our terms. Several years ago, and it's so painful to remember this, but several years ago, the Vancouver Canucks went to the Stanley Cup Finals Game 7, played in Vancouver against the Boston Bruins. Vancouver lost and a riot ensued in the city. Cars were set on fire. Stores were broken into and torched. A great many of the rioters went to trial and were sentenced. Recently, two men received three-year sentences. Most, about 80%, were sentenced to community supervision. Now, Let me ask you a biblical Old Testament question. What does three years in prison have to do with burning cars and stealing goods out of stores? How is prison related to these actions? Indeed, since the monetary cost of the riots were in the millions of dollars, how is justice served when we spend even more dollars now housing the perpetrators in prison? Doesn't it seem that only we pay and not the perpetrators? See, the Old Testament law of eye for an eye would have meant no prison time at all. Why? Because the penalty that is inflicted must perfectly reflect the crime that was done. If you broke a bank window, you will pay for that window and add a fifth to the valuation. Window for window, as simple as that. If you burned a car, you will pay the full value of that car and add a fifth. Car for car. So you want to be very careful which car you burn. In other words, what the eye for an eye law was intended to do is limit the punishment to the crime that was committed. The punishment had to fit the crime. In other words, if someone stole your car, you'd not burn their house down. Justice must fit the crime. No less to be sure, but no more. You can't demand of a person a greater damage than what they have done. This law was actually merciful, for it limited the damages to the crime. Justice must look like things are being said aright, matters are being made whole or being restored. No revenge was to be permitted. No upping of the ante. No taking matters into your own hands. None of that. Rather, a sober analysis of the damage that was done. And a demand that the perpetrators would be called upon to soberly face the damage that they had caused and they were to make it right. What's wrong with that? Well stay tuned.
0: As Christians we have this general awareness that taking revenge on someone is a bad thing. After all, God says in his word, vengeance is mine. Many of us might read Jesus' words eye for an eye and think that this main point was telling us to refrain from retaliation. But as Dr. Neufeld explains, we cannot fully understand these verses without going back to the context of the Old Testament law regarding justice and punishment. When we come back, we'll discover how Jesus' interpretation of this law helps us apply the principles of biblical justice in our everyday lives. Did you know about the exciting development of our Young Adults Ministry, In Doubt? Now In Doubt features a new weekly podcast addressing the issues of faith that face our current generation, along with a brand new mobile-optimized website. It's a great resource for any young man or woman wanting to understand God's perspective on the difficult issues of life. All of our in doubt resources are free and available at InDoubt.ca or sign up for our podcast on iTunes. So be sure to check out InDoubt.ca and spread the word. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Neufeld. Okay,
1: if Jesus said he did not come to abolish the law, how should we understand what he said? Here's the answer. Jesus knew that the sinful human heart would take the legal principle of eye for an eye and apply it to everyday conduct to an arena in human affairs that this law was never intended for. In other words, what Jesus was saying was simple. You may not take the eye for an eye rule of law and apply it to personal vendettas. The kind of thing in which when you punch me in the eye, I punch you in the eye. You put a dent in my car, I put a dent in your car. You offend my children, I offend your children. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You see what's happening? A principle intended to operate only in the courts of law was being applied to private human relationships. And, says Jesus, my followers are not permitted to live that way. So let me repeat myself. Jesus was not challenging how Jewish law courts were to operate. He was challenging the idea that you could take a legal principle from the Old Testament and apply that principle not to the courts, but to your private life. Jesus was denying that this was a legitimate way of interpreting the eye-for-an-eye passage in the Bible. How many of you know people who live by the eye-for-an-eye rule? Sure we do. Perhaps you're one of those people. Your principle is, no one gets away with anything around me. I'll show them that if they mess with me, I'll mess with them. Now consider where Jesus said these words. He said them in the Middle East. Israel was an occupied country occupied by the Romans. A group of people called the Zealots were a group of freedom fighters or terrorists, depending on which side of the debate you were on. The Zealots targeted Romans and Greeks living in Israel and killed them. They also killed Jews. Anyone who was guilty of collaborating with the Romans was targeted by them for death. After all, these people defeated our people by force, an eye for an eye. We will let them feel what death feels like. At least, that's what the zealous thought, and that's what they taught. Have you noticed that nothing has changed? If you occupy my land, I'm going to strap a bomb around my waist, and I'm going to blow up your children. A eye for an eye, man, tooth for a tooth. I'll let you feel what I feel. I've always wondered about this in the ancient world. You remember that back in the time of Moses, Moses designated a series of cities in Israel which were being called the cities of refuge. If someone accidentally killed someone, you could flee there for a safe trial. Why? Because in that culture, people did revenge killing. Why wait for the courts? They were too slow, and they might let someone off. And so these cities of refuge were set up where someone could flee and get a fair trial. And here's what Jesus is saying. For those who belong to me, there will be no personal vendettas. No eye for an eye applied to personal lives. I will not allow my followers to act this way. Now, in order to illustrate that, he gives four concrete examples. Let's look at each one of them in turn. Here's the first. It's found in verse 39. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other as well. So what does that mean? Does it mean that the battered woman should just keep on taking it? Well, no. Notice, please, that Jesus speaks specifically about the right cheek. He didn't say a cheek or any cheek, but specifies the right one. Why is that important? Because most people are right-handed, so a right-handed person cannot, with a closed fist, strike anyone on the right cheek. If you're looking to do physical damage, it will be on the left cheek. So Jesus is definitely not talking about taking a punch. Instead, what Jesus has in mind is the back of the hand. And in Jewish culture, this is the ultimate insult. One did not strike someone with the back of the hand and do them physical damage, but you struck them that way to humiliate them. So the right cheek is a symbol for an offense. It's an image not of physical violence, but of offense, of insult. And the reason I point this out is that this passage cannot be applied to an abused spouse or any other situation in which we ask the victim to make himself or herself available to a violent person. Jesus is not saying if someone hits you, don't even put your arms up to protect yourself. He's speaking of returning insult for insult. So let's see if we can reinforce what Jesus is saying. He is saying you cannot take the justice that the courts demand into the realm of private vendettas. First, never respond to insults with insults, and then claim that the Bible allows you to do that because it does not. Now, let's look at the second example found in verse 40. If someone would sue you and take your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. Again, the wrong interpretation here is that if someone sues you, give them everything they want. No. If an unbeliever wants to unjustly sue you, you should defend yourself in a court of law. That's what they're for. But look closely at verse 40. In this case, the lawsuit is over. You've lost. They have taken your tunic. The courts have ruled against you. You've no more defense. You have no more recourse. Even your tunic, your most basic garment, has been taken from you. Now, what's to be done? How should you respond? If you're a son of darkness, you're going to say, I am going to get them back. Instead, Jesus says we should respond in kindness. If that person who has sued you has a need in the future, don't refrain from helping them pour out kindness and not wrath. That's the idea. In short, Jesus is saying, first, respond to insults with kindness, and second, do more than the courts require. Now comes Jesus' third example, and this must have been directed at the zealots. Verse 41 says, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. So in the time of Jesus, Roman military personnel could conscript unpaid laborers from common people to build roads and fortifications and even public buildings. If they picked you, you were put to work and it was often humiliating. And so, Roman soldiers, when their pack of military gear got too heavy, could conscript any Jew to carry it for 1,000 paces, which is about one mile. And Jesus says, don't say, I'll get them back eye for an eye. Wait till I burn their house to the ground. Instead, he says, go 2,000 paces. Respond in grace. Be kind to people, even when the laws are stacked against you, be kinder than the situation demands. And then the final example, verse 42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. If you're not careful and you're not reading the context, you're going to say, oh, Jesus is telling us to give to everyone who asks us for money. But I don't think he's saying that at all. Indeed, in the years in which I was a pastor, we would normally have what we called a benevolent offering. It was a special offering for the poor. I work with Ben Lowell, who has been with the Salvation Army for many years, and he knows all about soup kitchens and clothes baskets and every form of care for the needy. You know, back to the Bible, we often work with Compassion Canada in their work to relieve poverty in the lives of children. I've often told people to give generously to those causes rather than simply doling out money in the streets. For in those kinds of causes, we are using our resources in a responsible way. See, that doesn't mean that we can't give to a beggar in the streets. I always say, allow the Spirit of God to direct you. I just know this, that a systematic approach is more effective, and it's more responsible, and it's often wiser. But Jesus is not talking to us about how to give wisely. He's speaking about bringing the eye for an eye a principle into our personal conduct. Someone might look at a poor person and say, well, they've got it coming. I mean, if they had graduated from high school instead of dropping out and went to university or trade school and applied themselves, well, they wouldn't be on the street today. Eye for an eye, man. You get what you deserve. And Jesus says, don't you do that in your personal life be known as a person of grace who responds even to evil people with overwhelming kindness. And tomorrow we're going to see how to apply that even to our enemies.
0: In this familiar passage we learn not only the heart of what Jesus is saying about how believers should act when wronged, but some very practical applications as well. Jesus didn't contradict the law, but rather put it into proper context, thereby preventing it from being abused in everyday life. In so doing, he calls us to be radical in our treatment of those who have insulted or harmed us in some way. An important but tough lesson for all of us to learn as we strive to live as citizens of God's kingdom. Join us again tomorrow as we continue discussing the Sermon on the Mount with Dr. John Newfeld in Matthew chapter 5. And we'll be looking at how we're to love our enemies. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. In Psalm 25, David wrote, Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. This verse really does capture the mission of Back to the Bible Canada, leading people into the truth of God's word, but not only in Canada. This past month, Dr. Newfeld and a ministry team from Back to the Bible Canada were privileged to visit Back to the Bible India in Hyderabad. It really was a privilege to meet with ministry leadership, share the Word of God, and discover how we in Canada might partner to share in the great need of this ministry and to come alongside to create new opportunities that would impact India in a profound way. 1.3 billion people, a nation that represents incredible need and diversity, has a great thirst for the hope that can only be discovered in a transformational relationship with Jesus. Would you join Back to the Bible Canada to provide the Bible teaching resources of Dr. John Newfeld across India? To provide resources that expand the presence of reliable Bible teaching through a renewed daily presence on radio and a new mobile-optimized website that will connect with all the smartphones across the country. These resources will not only be distributed widely in English, spoken by the majority of people in the urban centers, but in Telugu and Hindi, and a vision to offer even more languages as the opportunity and resources allow. We pray you share our passion for this incredible international opportunity for partnership with Back to the Bible India. Call us today for more information or to offer your gift. Or if you're currently a monthly partner, perhaps you'd consider increasing your gift, maybe just as much as $10 a month. It would do so much as we work towards our annual goal of $100,000 towards this important ministry. It would mean so much as we share in this great need to support Bible teaching in India. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or donate online at backtothebible.ca.